0: Have. Turn with me to Samuel chapter 10. So what I'll do, let, let's do this. I'm going to read 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 1 through 17. And then when we get to verse 18, we'll just jump in as we're doing, as we're in the text. We'll read those verses together. Children, you're dismissed with children's church. Um, the Lord bless you as you go and the teachers who are teaching while we study 1 Samuel. We're going through these books. Chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 10. We're doing both books. Someone asked me earlier about when we think we'll be done. 2026. I don't know. We're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're taking larger portions, maybe maybe sometime next year. But um, God's been gracious to the church. God has been encouraging and strengthening the church through this study. So I praise God for that. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Samuel took a flask of oil, then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, that would be Saul, and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over the people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, Donkeys that you went to seek are found and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go, Samuel telling Saul, then you shall go from there a little further and come to the oak of Tabar. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, verse 5, you shall come to Gibeoth Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place. With harp and trumpet, flute and lyre before them, and they're prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Verse 9. When he, Saul, turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of that place answered, And who is their father? Therefore became a proverb, as Saul among the prophets. When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Verse 14. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servants, Where would you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Hmm. May God add a reading. A blessing to the reading of his inerrant, infallible, authoritative, inspired word of God. Interesting, huh? Samuel, let me bring you to speed real quickly. Remember. He's the last judge of Israel, he's a prophet, he's a priest. He's called in chapter 3 to his prophetic office and then in chapter 7, Samuel is leading the foolish and disobedient Israelites back into repentance and renewal and worship, chapter 7. And we've been saying that this book of Samuel is a transitional book from, from a theocracy, of people ruled and governed by God, to a monarchy, a people ruled by an earthly king. And in chapter 8, The Israelites demand a king from Samuel. Now, we know that there was nothing inherently wrong with asking for a king because God had told Abraham back in Genesis that kings will come from you. But according to Deuteronomy 17, you really need to underline that in your Bible at this point. Deuteronomy 17, God told the Israelites even before they entered into the promised land that when they get there, they're going to ask for a king. So God outlines them. What kind of man he is to be? It's sort of like First uh, uh, um, Timothy three about a pastor. This is the kind of king you should you should have. The first thing God tells them is that the king should be someone that the Lord has chosen Deuteronomy seventeen fourteen. Someone the Lord has chosen. Someone who will not acquire uh, uh, many horses for himself. Someone who will not bring them back into slavery. Someone who will not have uh, a desire for excessive silver and gold someone who is king over Israel will sit on the throne and, and, of his kingdom and he'll write a copy of the law and he will read it and meditate upon it and, 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 and trust God and learn to fear God, Deuteronomy tells us, by keeping the words of his law and statutes and do them. That's the kind of king you want. Remember, there's nothing wrong with having a king, as I said, it's, but, but you've got to have the right king for the right reasons, God tells him. And that king is to recognize that he is not king over his people ultimately, but that God will be king over his people ultimately. In fact, he tells Samuel, has not the Lord appointed you to be prince over his people, Israel? Chapter 10, verse 1. Over, under God, over his people. And God had called the people of Israel to himself. God had called them out of uh, of Egypt to be his own Possession, a privilege that no one on earth had enjoyed but the people of God. And God warned them through the word of the prophet in chapter 8, verse 11, that the king that they want, the king that they are asking for, will will place them under high taxation and, and, and a harsh dictatorship. But the people didn't want to hear it. They said, oh, that, that's wonderful, that's great, uh, I see that, but you know what, we want a king anyway. And God tells Samuel, listen, they're rejecting your word because ultimately they're rejecting me. It's not you, Samuel, it's, it's the fact that they are rejecting God himself. And God turns to Samuel and says, listen, obey their voice. And we talked about, you know what, you got to be careful what you ask for. <laughs> You've got to be careful for what you ask for. God may give us what we ask for and, and desire to teach us a lesson, and actually to bring discipline, loving discipline upon us. Last week, we, lit, we witnessed the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty and the providence of God, and how Samuel meets Saul, and, and the choosing and the anointing of Saul. And this meeting, this, this sovereignty, you see the sovereignty of God, the providence of God last week, this meeting was arranged through lost donkeys, a servant, a coin, Young women drawing water, sacrifices, dinner and a movie. Not a movie, but dinner and and resting on the rooftop. We saw that in chapter 9. Ordinary occasions that God orchestrated through his sovereignty and his providence that brought an extraordinary ending, the anointing of Saul. In chapter 9, verse 15, we get an eternal perspective of what was going on in the sovereignty and providence of God with the meeting of Samuel and Saul. It says this in chapter 9, verse 15. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, listen, Samuel, the word of the Lord is coming to you. Tomorrow, at this time, I'm going to send you a man. All that's going on in, in the sovereignty and the providence is work of God. is he's sending a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. That's what he's going to do. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, chapter 9, verse 17, the Lord told him, that's the man. Here's the man I spoke to you about. He it is who will restrain my people. Now, notice what it says in chapter 9, verse 15 through 17. Notice what the purpose and the anointing of of, of Saul was all about. He uses the word prince. He used the word leader. He was to what? Save the people from the hand of the Philistines and to restrain them. And then last week we ended at chapter ten, verse one, where there was anointing. There was a pouring of oil on Saul's head, probably dripping down his hair unto his beard. And, and and then he kissed him. Samuel kissed Saul. A sign of affection, maybe, sign of a of grace, a sign of, of support. Acceptance. They they still do this today. I know even in my family, Italian background, we kiss on the cheek as a sign of, of affection, a sign of support and acceptance. And the Lord uh, uses this, uh, excuse me, Samuel used this oil as a symbol of consecration. That Saul was set apart now for the purposes of God. That, that the anointing was symbolic of what the Spirit of God, when he will come on Saul, will see that he will enable him, he will empower him for service by the Spirit. And we see in the Old Testament this anointing that takes place on three leadership offices, the prophets, the priests, and the king. And Samuel anoints Saul's head, but look at chapter 10, verse 1. It wasn't really Samuel who was anointing him. He says in chapter chapter 10, verse 1, has not the Lord anointed you? Samuel is just an instrument that God is using because God is doing really the anointing. The Lord who anoints Saul ultimately. Now, this marks a, a a change. We see this monarchy. We see this anointing of the kings. Up to this point, it was just the priests that were anointed. Soon, the prophets will be as well. Now, our scripture lesson this morning is really two major sections. Section one, which is verses one through sixteen, chapter ten, verses one through sixteen, is an, is is the authentication. It is the the confirmation of Samuel anointing of Saul and God will confirm his anointing his, his making him king through three signs verses 1 through 17 16 verse 17 through 27 is when Samuel now gathers the people of Israel together at Mizpah and he's going to declare the word of God to them and he's going to gather them together so three simple things we'll look at the signs we're going to look at the sin of rejection and then the statement this, the statement long live the king in which we will end Okay, number one, the sign. Look at verse one with me. If your Bible does not have the complete verse, um, Samuel took a flash of oil, poured it on his head, and kissed him, and said, Has not the Lord, Lord appointed you to be prince over his people? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of the surrounding enemies. If some of that, you only got half a verse in your Bibles because they used the Hebrew text, and the ESV used what's called the Septuagint text. It's the Old Testament in the Greek okay which i think is 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 the proper text to use anyway so there's this anointing there's these signs there's this authentication that's going to happen to Saul as Saul moves on now the signs that he's going to, there's going to be three of them there's going to be three signs it is really an ex- an exhibition, a, a Saul, excuse me, Samuel is, is exhibiting a supernatural work of God that Samuel sees, and Samuel's going to say, Saul, you've been anointed, but you need to see the signs for yourself. And each sign, very interesting, each sign is very specific as to whom Saul will meet, who he will meet, where he will meet, and what happens at this meeting as he heads back home. All of this to confirm, authenticate, The divine word spoken from the prophet, the word of God. The first sign, verse 2, Saul passes by Rachel's tomb, the territory of Benjamin Zelzah. If you have your Bibles, you can open it. There he will meet uh, two men, and the two men will say, look, your donkeys, the ones that you're seeking for, so obviously these men know Saul, know Saul's family, because Saul's looking for these donkeys in in chapter 9. And the ones that they have been found, your father has ceased to care about the donkeys, and he's anxious for you. So you're going to run into two men right at this place, and they're going to meet you, and they're going to tell you this. Verses 3 four, four, three and 4 is the second sign. As you're going on, you're going to come to a place called Tabar. On their way to Bethel, there's going to be men with sacrifices. They're going to have meat, they're going to have bread, and they're going to have wine. And one of the men is going to give you two loaves of bread. Notice what it says. I want you to take it from them. Why? Because that bread was brought up to the worship place of worship and that bread was for the anointed priest. Sacrifice. In other words, Saul, you've been anointed and now it's kind of odd. They're going to offer you bread that was brought up there for the anointed priest. You take it from them. Something very special about that. And now the third sign. I got the verse up, verses five through six. Samuel tells Saul, when you get to Gibeah Elohim which means the hill of God, something else is going to happen. The prophets are going to come. But notice what he says that's going on up there. He says there's a place called, which is Gibeath Elohim means the hill of God. And at the hill of God, at this borderline, border of the, of the place, um, there's a garrison. There, there are Philistines camp there. All right, and remember, We're going to anoint you king. You're going to save my people from the Philistines. And when you get there, there's going to be a garrison of Philistines. Just a reminder that Paul, excuse me, Saul, you've been anointed as king to fight for God's people. But first, before Saul is to do anything, he needs empowerment. Look at verse 5. He needs the Spirit of God. As soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place. They'll have harps, tambourine, flute, lyre before them prophesying. Verse 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Literally overturned, turned around. And these signs, these three signs, including Saul himself prophesying, will be proof, authenticating proof that the Lord is with him. Now, don't read into this some New Testament understanding of Holy Spirit work, of union with Christ. This is an anointing for service, not for salvation. God in the Old Testament has given spiritual power for a specific task that he's called people to does not necessarily mean they're believers or they're in union with God. The story of Balaam in Numbers, you can read, is proof of that. The expression, the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, when it's spoken about in Scripture, means that they are being equipped, they are being empowered to, to carry out God's plans. We don't have time to talk about this, but in the New Testament, uh, the Holy Spirit's role, its functions changed in some degree, we don't get into it right now, at Pentecost. In John chapter 7, Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit, that, that, how the Holy Spirit would out of our hearts flow, like, be like rivers of flowing of living water. And then Jesus says, now this, now John writes, now this he said about the Spirit, with whom, listen, whom those who believed in Christ were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So there's this, there's a ceiling, there's this baptism, there's this function change in the New Testament after Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, one God, three persons, always existed, but his role and his function seems to have changed. It's a great study if you want to do, by the way. The ESV Gospel Transformation Bible, which I love, says this. Such language is not to be understood in New Testament terms of spiritual regeneration, but as a temporary alteration of Saul's normal behavior in order that all the signs might be fulfilled. To prophesy was so out of character for Saul that those who knew him were astonished, end quote. Most commentators, not all, but most commentators acknowledge that Saul was not a believer. Just look at his life. He starts out well, but he crashes and burns. Now remember, Saul will lose the spirit's power. Saul will lose the kingdom. Saul will, will lose both his legacy and his life. He, he, If you remember, well, you don't remember, we haven't gotten there yet, but if you read ahead, he he, he intrudes into the office of the priesthood in chapter 13. Or he orders the death of his own son. He'll disobey God in chapter 15, the Amaleks. He will have an evil spirit come upon him in verse 16. He'll try to kill King David. He tries to kill his own son again. He kills the priest of God in chapter 2. He goes to the witch of Endor, which was totally uh, an abomination in chapter 28. I can go on, but Saul's heart, as I was studying this, I think Saul's heart is what Jesus taught about the parable of the sower. That's what came to mind. A parable of a sower. They hear the word immediately, receive it with joy, but have no root in themselves. Tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, and they fall away. They had no root. But Saul did not go under, excuse me, Saul did not undergo any principle of life change, anything that would radically change him as a believer. I don't think that's happened. Notice, though, these signs. Think of, think, of, think of these three signs for a moment and think of what happened in chapter 9. If you weren't here, you can get the CD. Think of what happened in chapter 9. Two men come to him as one, sign one, at Zelzah and tell him the donkeys, the donkeys have been found. That is a reminder to Saul that when he first met Samuel, he was searching for donkeys. In fact, Samuel said to him in chapter 9, verse 20, the donkeys are safe. Three men at Tabor give him two loaves of bread that were offered for the priest. You remember when Samuel met Saul? He brought Saul up to the worship center and what did he do? He gave him the choice meat that was for the priest. And here he's getting two loaves of bread that was meant for the anointed priest. Finally, Saul meets the prophets and the Spirit of God rushes upon him. What does he ever think of that? He's going to think of the anointing. When Saul, excuse me, Samuel poured the oil on him and said, The Lord has anointed you. All these are reminders and authenticating the sovereignty of God, the providence of God in the meeting between Saul and Samuel, that God has anointed him to be king. And once he's empowered by the Spirit, look what it says. He's supposed to do something. Verse 7. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Do what your hand finds find you to do. There's one other place in Scripture that exact phrase is used, and that's in Judges 9. It has to do with military conquest. And some commentators, in fact, I, I, this is what I think, you could talk about it in, in in community group. When the Spirit comes upon you, there are these Philistines over here. The Spirit's come upon you, do what God has called you to do. In other words, I would say, attack the Philistines. They're there. You're the king. You're supposed to... Beat their enemies. I'm letting you know when the Spirit comes upon you, the Philistines are going to be there. Do what your hand is called to do. In other words, attack and destroy the Philistines. In fact, he tells them in verse, um, the next verse, go down away from me. When I get there in seven days, we're going to sacrifice uh, a burnt offering and a peace offering. I don't think that took place. I think the, the, the seven day wait in chapter 13 is a different time. I think Saul was said, listen, when the Spirit comes upon you, remember there are, there are Philistines there, do what you need to do. In other words, attack the Philistines, take care of them. I'll meet you in seven days because you're going to have victory. God already said so. And I'll meet you in seven days and we'll do burnt offerings. That's has to do with praise and thanksgiving and celebration. I'll meet you there. And I, I don't think he does it. I think although he got a new heart, I think, you know, he's got a, he's got a new person. Chapter 6, uh, excuse me, verse 6, verse 9. I I think we see here, he's not following through. He's not doing what he has been called to do. He says, go down there and wait for me. Verse 9. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, after Samuel gave him all this direction, look at verse 9, God gave him another heart. And all the signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, Behold, a group of prophets met him, the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them, and when all who knew him <laughs> said, Man, what, what has come over this guy? Is Saul also among the prophets? Now let's draw our, we, we, a lot of history here. Let's, let's draw some principles here. Let's, draw some, let's, let's talk two principles. Number one, Saul now is the, is the promised, now king, and God gives him the power to, to do what God had called him to do. But notice, he was to submit to Samuel, the prophet, who brings God's word. All throughout this text, Samuel is directing, leading. The Spirit of God gives us power, but that power that he gives us is to be exercised in obedience to God's word. The spirit and the word must never be separated. And Samuel's instructing Saul. Samuel's trying to teach Saul to submit to the word of God. And not to do whatever he wants, but to do what the prophet, who is the mouthpiece of God, tells him to do. See, although they were going from a theocracy to a monarchy, it was never meant that God was not going to speak through his prophets. In fact, I would say that the prophets have... A, 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 I would say a, a royal authority a royal power over the king because they are bringing forth the word of god they're functionally superior to that of the king because they bring the word of god so let me challenge you this morning let, let me let me ask you a question and challenge you this morning do you open your bible uh, are you getting ready for for god to speak to you is your heart humbled are you are you? Uh, under the word of God and not over the word of God? Are are you opening up and saying, Lord, speak to me, show me the truth, help me to obey, help me to delight in you, help me to see you? Are you longing when you do your Bible reading, or hopefully you do, you're reading the scripture and you're saying, Lord, speak to me through your word. I don't care what they tell you on the view. God speaks to us through his word. Is the Word of God the final authority, or are you coming to it as a skeptic and say, "You know what? I'll choose what I want. I'll take out what I want. I, 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 I'm going to try any way I can to find out something wrong with this." Let me challenge you today. Read your Bibles. Read your Bibles regularly. Pray, God, I need you. God, I need your spirit to understand. I need your power to obey. I need your power to apply this in my life. I need your word. I need the power of the spirit to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus. Show me I submit to you. The second principle I think I draw from this text is, listen, no matter what God has called you to do, no matter what God has called you to do, God will empower the people he calls. It's not to be your own strength, not even Saul. You, you can't go about doing your thing your way and your power. It's not it doesn't work that way. Before God in, instructs us or when God instructs us, and empower, He'll empower us to do what God wants us to do. And in the New Testament when believers uh, 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 repent of their sins, trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, they yield to Him, they trust Him, they become a new man and God gives us the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit transforming us he reconciles us and transforms us by his power, and then God equips us with gifts. If you're a Christian here today and you've been born anew from his spirit, you have a spiritual gift. At least one. Now, some of you are brand new Christian, you don't know what that is. That's cool. I didn't either. But if you're here and you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a long time, what's your spiritual gift? Are you using them? Pastor Chris mentioned things that we need going on here. Maybe there's something in your heart that you want to do. Give us a call. Fill out the form. It's online. What would you like to do? How would you like to serve God with your spiritual gifts? Here's our definition, spiritual gifts. An ability sovereignly given by God, not you, it's God's choice, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that. An ability sovereignly given by God to believers for God's glory that empowers, up for the power, empowers us for the building up of the body, the work of the ministry, and the advancement of the kingdom. It's not about you, but love and service and glory and kingdom. That's why Paul was so mad in the Corinthian church about tongues. It was all about them. We don't serve at our own strength. We don't serve out of our own strength. It's God's gift, God's glory. He gets the praised. What is your spiritual gift? Are you using it? Now the question has asked. Look at look with me in verse eleven and twelve. Is Saul among the prophets? The answer is no. Saul is not a prophet. He doesn't. He is not taken on the role or the office of the prophet. He is exercising his prophetic giftedness by the power of his spirit. Some of you may have pastoral gifts, but God has not called you to the the role or to the office of pastor. And here is Saul. He's exercising. The spirit of God is upon him. And he's prophesying, which doesn't mean just foretelling the future. It's it's foretelling the praising, the worship of, of God. And when you're exercising these gifts and God has filled you and you are Proclaiming the goodness of God and you're worshiping the Lord, people are gonna say, What? That's what this says here. Who, who is he? What happened to that guy? Did that happened to you when you became Christian? Happened to me. Like Lou is doing what? What is he reading? A Bible. What? What happened to you? You get religious on us? Uh yeah, I I, I don't I, I don't know. Ah. It's just a phase you're going through. You'll get over it. Yeah. 30 years. It's, it's quite a long phase. <laughs> you know, even in my family, it was something. You know, can you imagine? I mean, let's not be so hard on Saul right away. Anyway, can you imagine on a Thursday, you go home to your farm? I never lived on a farm, but if you did, and there's a couple of missing donkeys, and Dad's like, "Hey, listen, I want you to go find these donkeys." Like, okay, you go, and you're gone a couple of days, and you come home, and you're the king of Israel. Like, that's a weekend. Yeah, I was going shopping, man. I stopped the price shop, and next thing you know, they inaugurated me. I'm the the president of the United States. I don't know how it happened. You know, it's like that, that's, that's quite a day. That is quite a day. So let's not be so hard on when he meets his uncle in verse 14. Because his uncle comes to him and he's like, hey, how's your weekend there, uh, nephew? Pretty good. What'd you do? Looking for some donkeys. Yeah, did you find, yeah, I found, actually, I ran to a guy named Samuel. Everyone knows Samuel's a prophet. Really? Hmm, what did he tell you? Uh, he said the donkeys were fine. <laughs> Anything else? No. Verse sixteen. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell anyone. Now, was Saul afraid? Was Saul unwilling? Was he afraid, or was he rebellious? Like I don't, I, I, I'm not doing this. I don't care what God has said. Or was he just being wise and humble? In the words of Doctor. Um, um, P, uh, not Peter Mason, but Dr. Mason, Eric Mason. You could chop it up, as he says, in your community groups. Why did Saul not tell him? I think he was being wise, personally. You could talk about it. I, think he's, I, I, don't think, I don't think he's afraid. I just think he's being wise. Hey, uncle, yeah, it was a great weekend. Yeah, I'm now your king. Please bow down before me. Like, really, nephew? I don't think so. And what are you smoking? Are you sure? Come on. What's going on? So I don't think it was that, I think he's just, I think he's, he had this private anointing, he's empowered by the, the Spirit, he's anointed king, he's prophesying, and he goes home, he's like, what, that was a weekend. And the signs authenticated his role. The Spirit of God empowered him. So now it's time for Samuel. Let's gather the troops. Chapter uh, 10, verse 17. He gets everybody in one place, and he goes to Mitzvah. If you remember, chapter 7, Mitzvah is the place where he gathered a nation in repentance. He gathered the nations in renewal, in worship, confession of their sins. And now he's gathering them again, not for worship. He's giving them a word of rebuke. Because their desire, their their decision, and their motivation for a king is really born out of idolatry, of rejection of God as their king. Chapter ten, verse seventeen. Samuel called the people together to the Lord, to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, "Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel: I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdom that was oppressing you. But today." But today, you rejected your God who saved you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Again, they want the wrong king for the wrong reasons. And let me tell you, over and over in the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, you read the prophets, you'll see prophets stepping up and rehearsing the mighty acts of God. The, the wonders of God, the, the, the uh, deliverance of God, uh, the mercy of God, the grace of God, as a way in saying, listen, do you remember this? Trust me, God is saying. I brought you out of Egypt. I have destroyed all those who were against you. I delivered you against the oppressors. Trust me. Trust me. And the implication is clear. The Israelites were not trusting God. They were not trusting God to save them from the Philistines. And you can see it in the text. I did this, I did that, I did this. But you, the emphatic other contrast, you rejected your God. It's not as simply we don't, we, just give us a king. It's, it's give us a king. We reject a covenant relationship with you. That's what the problem is here. Again, be careful what you ask for. So the question for you this morning, the question for me this morning I asked the first service was, Very simple. Is God trustworthy? Is God trustworthy? Do you personally trust God? And the foundation of trust, this foundation of trust in God begins with our knowledge and our relationship with Him. See, you can't trust someone you don't know. Let me say this as clear as I can and as loving as I can. The only way to trust God is to know him. And the only way to know him is by his spirit through his word. His self disclosure of himself. Samuel's the mouthpiece of God. <laughs> in chapter three it says the word of God was rare in those days. And then Samuel's called to his prophetic office and brings back the word of God. Do you know that the word of God, the self disclosure of God, is a gift to you? God doesn't owe us himself to show us himself. God is not obligated to reveal himself to us. It's a gift. His word is a gift to us. As we get to know God through his word, illuminated by the spirit, we learn God is trustworthy. God is not a man that he should lie. God makes promises. God keeps his promises. God fulfills his plans and his purposes. Isaiah 14, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I've planned, so shall it be as i purposed, so shall it stand. The Israelites have seen God's faithfulness and, and watched God fulfill his promises. They heard his, God heard their cry in Egypt. God provided food and water in the wilderness, gave them direction, spared them from Egypt. Over and over again, God proved himself faithful. And God has proven Himself faithful. If you walk in with Christ at any amount of time, to you too, and to me, has He not? But because our hearts are prone to wander, as that song goes, "My heart's prone to wander." We are so easily astray, led astray to seek other things, other kings, that we think will give us joy and happiness, fulfillment, and purpose. We need to be reminded. We need to be reminded, God is faithful. God loves you. God's grace. God is faithful. God can save you from your calamities and your distresses. All of us need to be reminded of his love. That's what I do every Sunday. His love, his grace, and his faithfulness. And seek him to give us what only God can give us. That's what idolatry is, seeking other things. There's no true joy. True peace and justification outside of God. Now, there's a man named Blaise Pascal, who's a mathematician, philosopher, scientist in the 1600s. When he's, when he, he said this quote, and this is about eternal joy, eternal peace, about man seeking it, and this is what he writes. He said, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim? In other words, there's this desire in my heart. He says, it proclaims, but that there was once in a man true happiness of which all that now remains is empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there, the help he cannot find in those that are there. Though none can help, he says, since the infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite immutable object. In other words, God Himself. End quote. That's idolatry. The things that are more important to you than God, the things that captivate your heart and mind more than God, the things that you seek to give you what only God can give you—that vital, foundational thing in your life—that if you lose it, you would lose yourself. Those things in which you cling to, those things in which I cling to, are just self-efforts, self-justifiers. To save ourselves. Like the Israelites who rejected God. They wanted salvation in someone else. Someone else will save us. And idolatry is essentially the this, this, this sin of self-effort. The sin of, of self-salvation. Trying to be our own saviors, our own lords. And trusting in things other than God and God's provision for us. Tim Keller, great book, called Reasons for God. If you know anybody that's a skeptic about Christianity, it's a great book. Tim Keller, a Presbyterian pastor in New York City, Reasons for God. He said this There are two ways to be your own savior and your own Lord. The first is by saying, I'm going to live my life the way I want. The second way is described by Flannery O'Connor, who wrote about one of her characters by the name of Jose Motes, that he knew that the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. If you are avoiding sin and living morally so that God will have to bless you and save you, then, ironically, you may be looking to Jesus as a teacher, a model, and a helper, but you're avoiding him as Savior. You are trusting in your own goodness rather than in Jesus for your standing with God. Then he writes this, you are trying to save yourself by following Jesus. In other words, religion, if I obey and I do what God wants me to do, then, then God will, be, will, will forgive me, then God will accept me, then God will bless me because I'm obeying him. Or irreligion, uh, uh, I don't want nothing to do with him, I, I, I want to do my own thing, be my own lord, my own saviors, are really both ways that we try to be our own saviors and lords. Irreligion says, I will make what's right, I will say what's right, I will do as I want. And then the more religious people seek to build Savior through religious pride. Look how good I'm doing. I read my Bible. I go to church. I tithe. I do everything I'm supposed to do. You know what, God? You owe me. You owe me. You owe me a happy life. I've earned it. You you should listen to my prayers. I've earned it. You see, irreligious people reject Jesus as Savior and Lord of their lives because they want to have power and control and rulership over their life. And the religious person rejects Jesus Christ because when they see him who he really is, his holiness, they are completely and utterly humbled and they can't take it. We're called, listen, to repent of personal saviors Listen, being religious, working and doing things that God tells us we should be doing for the motivation of earning his love, being accepted by him, and have a sense of personal justification is just another form of idolatry. You're relying on your work, you're relying on your behavior, you're relying on your moral and upright conduct to save you. All, adult, all idolatry is a functional righteousness and a worth that you do yourself, but that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that our salvation is by sheer grace, through the moral record, through the performance of Jesus' perfect life, his perfect record, imputed and counted to us by faith alone in Christ alone. The way God saves us when we are willing to turn from our personal, by the Spirit, willing to turn from our personal saviors, stop looking at false saviors, and turn to him as the only means of salvation. Utterly dependent, Upon Jesus, his perfect life and his atoning death and his glorious resurrection from the dead alone. Signs, sin of rejection, and finally the statement of coronation. Now, when a prophet shows up and a prophet speaks to the people and they say, everything that God has done for you, and then all of a sudden he says, but this is what you did. You rejected the king. Now, gather together, it's usually not a good thing. Like, oh, here comes the woes. <laughs> you read the Old Testament. oh here. So you can imagine what Samuel, not, not Samuel, but you imagine what people were thinking when Samuel says in verse 7, present yourself before the Lord by the tribe and by your thousands. Not long ago, Joshua 7, if you know the story of Achan. Right? Go into the land, destroy everything. Don't take anything. If someone takes something that don't belong to them, it says in, in, in Joshua, make the camp. It will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. What they do? They go in, and what does Achan do? Takes a little booty for himself. Got a little robe, some gold. God is not happy. And what they do? Get everybody together by a clan and slowly move their way, just like they're doing here, until Achan is chosen. Note the story. They go to his, They go to his tent. And they find the goodies there. And what do they do? They stone them to death and burn them. So you can imagine after Samuel's rebuke and calling, them all together what they're thinking. Oh boy, I know how this story goes. Samuel, verse 20, brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin. And they were taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clan. And the clan of the Matrites were taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But... When they sought him, he could be found. Where'd he go? I don't know. We're doing the lots. He's not finding them. We're not sure exactly what the lots were. Some people think of it as what they call the Urim and, a, and the Thummim. It's, it's something inside the breastplate of, of the ephod of the high priest. They would use that as, as a lot. Um, they, they cast a lot for different reasons. We read it in Acts chapter 1. They cast a lot for replacing of Judah. Uh, but remember, Proverbs 16.33. This is all by the will of God. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. This is not superstition. This is something God has allowed in the Old Testament. It is a public confirmation of what God was doing rather than simply Samuel's private anointing of Saul. The prophetic word should have been enough, but this is going to remove every doubt. Who is the king? And the lots fall on one guy. He's in the baggage. Verse twenty-two. Behold, he was hiding himself among the baggage. He, he's he's hiding out in the suitcases. Actually, baggage it could be utensils, weapons, musical instruments. I don't know. But the point is, he's nowhere to be found. Samuel has, excuse me, Saul has got out of dodge. Maybe when they're gathering everybody together, like Saul's like, oh, this never goes good. I'm not staying. I'm hiding. God will never find me in the baggage. Verse 22. So they inquired again Lord, where is this guy? We need your help. Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Yeah, yeah, behold, he's hidden. He's right over there. He's under the baggage. You see Samuel, like, how'd you know I was here? You know? The Lord told us. They ran, they took him. He stood up among the people. Must have been a big baggage. And he was taller than all the other people, his shoulders upwards. And Samuel says to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Now, again, we don't know why he was hiding. It certainly wasn't pride and arrogance, because if it was me, I'd be like, yo, there's anointing going on. I think I'll stick around because I know where this is going. I know exactly who's going to be chosen. Yeah, yeah, that's me, right? Now he's hiding I don't know why, but maybe fear, I don't know, humility, we don't know. They run, they bring him out, and everyone's like, that is one handsome dude. He's tall, he's handsome, that's the guy. It doesn't make him a great king, it just makes him, you know, win an Academy Award or something. I read a commentary this week that said, and I'm assuming this is accurate, it's a very well-written commentary, that whenever tall people are mentioned in the Scripture, it all has to do with non-covenantal people. And I looked up a few of them. It's true, the pre-Israelites in Canaan, Numus 13, the Anakites in Deuteronomy 2, the Philistine, the giant, all these larger-than-life people have nothing to do with the covenant people of God. And therefore, it's kind of pointing and describing Saul as one of those guys. Interesting, very interesting. Samuel says, the Lord has chosen you. And you might wonder, why didn't God choose a better king for them? And the answer is found in the earlier rebuke. God's choice, now listen, God's choice of Saul is partly God's judgment on them for their wrong and foolish motivation in their request for a king. The people gather around Saul and then about, and they shout this coronation, long live the king, let's put the gold medal on him like he won some Olympic thing. Saul may be hiding, but now he is king. The chapter closes this way, verse 25. Then Saul told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in the book and laid it up before the Lord. I believe it was Deuteronomy 17, at least partly. It was exactly what, this is what the king is supposed to do. Verse uh, 25. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. You see the prophet taking authority still. Verse 26, Saul also went to his home at Gibeah and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows, that's the same word that Eli called Hannah and the same word that said about Eli's sons, they were worthless. How can this man save us? Come on. And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. The king held his peace even after he was rejected and despised. In some ways he will save them, and some days he can't. Why? Because this is about the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I mean, if you see an anointed king of Israel who's who's rejected and despised, but held his peace, does that sound like anybody we know? Isaiah 53, he, Jesus, was despised, rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men... Hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him, stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was, Jesus, pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Listen to what Isaiah says. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring resurrection. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Listen, all the kings of Israel, even David, don't compare to the king of kings. Jesus is the true and better king. He is the true and better savior. No longer do we need to look to self-justification. No longer do we need to try and be our own lords thinking, you know what, I'll do whatever I want and find out at the end of the day it's accomplished nothing or accomplishing something you want and getting full of pride, just like Satan. No. Our Savior lives a perfect life. A perfect life that's required that we will never live and die a wrathful death in our place. The death that we should have died. And then he freely offers us salvation. How can this man save us? Through repenting. Stop trying to be your own savior, your own Lord. Stop trying to self-justify or save yourself and believe on and trust on the Lord Jesus Christ who died as a payment for your sin debt and rose from the dead for your justification. Forgiveness of sin, imputed righteousness, reconciled to God. Trust his moral record, not yours. Trust his moral performance, not yours. Just trust His obedience, perfect obedience to the law that's been imputed and counted to you by faith alone in Christ alone. Will Jesus be your king this morning? Will he be the one who all ushers in the kingdom of God, who inaugurates the kingdom of God? He is the true king of Kings. In fact, let me give you one more verse. Jesus came into Galilee, Mark 1, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. The gospel. Father, by your spirit, through your son, for your glory, Father, we want to destroy the idols of our hearts, ways in which we are trying to justify ourselves. We we are trying to find meaning and purpose outside of you. Father, ways in which we want to save ourselves, it can never happen. So, Father, help us as we sing, as we respond now in music to worship you. That Jesus alone died an atoning death. His perfect life can be imputed to us so that we may become the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. Father, we pray that you will now give us your spirit and point us to Jesus. Help us to worship him in spirit and truth and help us to trust and believe and worship him alone.